Thank you, Brother Allen. If you would open your Bibles, not to John 16, but to John chapter 18. John chapter 18 is where we're going to spend much of our time, but we're going to be going a little bit into John chapter 19 as well. I encourage you, when you go home, to read this chapter. I can't read this whole thing for you this morning because I'm here to preach, not to read. I'll be reading plenty of this scripture, and I believe what the goal of any preacher should be is to understand and to communicate in his best way possible what the author is trying to convey. The author has an intent. He, John wrote this for a specific reason. He wanted to reveal specific truths to us. And so that's my goal this morning, for us to understand what John's intent was. I'm going to be, uh, if you want to uh, uh, read that passage, it's going to be John chapter 18 and chapter 19 through verse 22. This is going to be our whole passage this morning, and I would go ahead and read the rest of chapter 19 because that's what I'm preaching next week. But before I get started, let's pray. Father, I love you, and I thank you for your love. Lord, you have, uh, uh, your word tells us that you have shown your love toward us and that while we were sinners, you died on the cross for our sins. God, I pray, help us to, to see it, help us to understand it, help us to come to grips with the gravity of this event of the cross. God, I pray you help us to understand Jesus in a way today that maybe we never have. Lord, help us to see his tremendous love and faithfulness. Help us to see uh, the power of the salvation we can find in him. Lord, I pray that if there's one here that's never trusted you, Lord, I pray you just continue to work on their heart and reveal to them their need of a Savior. In Christ's name I pray, amen. I've said we're building towards a momentous event. We've been reading through John. We've been started in chapter 15 and 16, and we we went through chapter 17 the last couple of weeks, and we saw that prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples and the prayer that he prayed for you and me. But all of that has been building up to this huge and powerful dramatic event. In fact, the most dramatic and life-altering event in all of history, the cross. And if what I want us to see from these passages, what I believe John wants us to see from this passage, is that Jesus was in total control. The first point I have for you this morning is, is much through chapter 18, verses 1 through 32, that Jesus, we see him presented to us from John as the sovereign Savior. Jesus was not a helpless victim. He was not a helpless victim at all. And maybe you haven't seen what I've discovered as I've studied this, but I pray you'll see it because I'm seeing something new in this passage. Look in these first three verses. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the brook Kedron, where there was a garden, into the which he entered, and his disciples. Y'all know which garden we're talking about, right? The Garden of Gethsemane. 
Some of y'all going to uh, Israel at the end of this year in, in December are going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Am I right, Brother Lester? Yeah, y'all going to be there. And so this is, this is what is taking place in Scripture. It's in a real place, a place that still exists. And Jesus, what I want you to see about this is that this is a place that Jesus chose. Jesus chose this place. In fact, it says why in verse 2. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. So Jesus chose the place that he was going to be found. And he chose a place that was well known to Judas, his betrayer. Jesus did not go to the Garden of Gethsemane because it was, it was just a quiet place where he could reflect and pray. It wasn't, it wasn't that he chose a place where he would be well hidden away from those that were seeking him. He chose a place where he could be easily found. Jesus, what are we talking about? That he is sovereign over this whole event. It might look like that Jesus is hunting him down, that the, that the guards are hunting him down. But in reality, Jesus is laying an ambush. He's laying a trap for the devil. He's, he's inviting them. Please, you know where you're going to find me. Come and get me. Look in verses 4. Verse 3, we'll just read that. Jesus, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and, and weapons. And therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? This, look, at, look at what else Jesus does. He takes the initiative. Jesus takes the initiative. He came, he came forward. He hears uh, them coming. He knows the hour is at hand. That hour he talked about all through the book of John when he said the hour is not yet. He knows the hour has come. And Jesus takes the initiative. He doesn't wait. He, he doesn't uh, uh, you know, kind of wait for them to make their move. No, he goes to them. And he initiates. He, he knew what would happen when they arrived and he was ready to meet it. He was ready to meet it. Nothing was a surprise to Jesus in this day. And he asked this question, whom are you seeking? Listen, Jesus was not asking this question because he needed to gather information about what was going on. Jesus was asking this question uh, to, 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 uh, to direct the action. He's not an actor on the stage. He's the director. He's moving things forward. He's sovereign over this event. We see in verse 5 and 6, and they, they, they answered Jesus of Nazareth. <clears throat> Jesus answered to them, I am. In your Bible, it says, I am he. And it says that in mine too. That he has just added. What he really was saying is, I am. And that if you understand the meaning of those words, I am, he's saying, I'm God. I'm God in the flesh. I'm here. This is, I am. I'm here. And they went. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and they fell to the ground. Listen, we don't, we don't really know why the soldiers fall to the ground. There's a lot of reasons. We don't even know how uh, he, they're caused to fall to the ground. But really the, the reality that we see is that Jesus is not being taken out of weakness. 
Jesus is not in a place of weakness here. He is the one who's in control. Jesus is the sovereign Savior. He chose the place he was going to be found. He takes the initiative. Look in verse 7. And then he asked them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I've told you that I'm he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Now, this is interesting. I mean, think about what Jesus is really doing here. I mean, he's, yes, he's identifying him, himself. He's, he's showing them who they're looking for. But you know what else he's doing? He's issuing commands. Jesus is issuing commands to soldiers who were used to taking commands from their superior officers. And now they're taking commands from their victim, from their captive. Jesus is issuing commands, and, and his command is to get on with their business and then to leave his disciples alone. Listen, he had just prayed through chapter 17. You saw that prayer, the protection that he was going to offer and the promise for his disciples. And not just his disciples there, but these disciples here. If you're a believer, then you're one of these disciples. He's here to protect, by the way. Jesus commands that they leave them alone. He cares for his disciples. And he had promised to protect them and to preserve them. Look in verse 10. Uh, well, verse 9, it, it reveals a little more. He says, Then uh, that sayest, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them which I, thou gavest me, have I lost none. Verse 10, the Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it. Oh, Peter. And he smote the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. From other passages, we know that Jesus put his ear back on. Jesus is in control. Judas, or Judas, Judas betrayed the Lord. Peter didn't see what was taking place, though. I mean, think about what Peter was seeing and why Peter reacted this way. He, he looks at this and he sees that Everything is spiraling out of control. And someone's got to take charge here. Someone needs to protect uh, my master. Verse 11. Then said Jesus to Peter. Peter, Jesus explains it. He says, put up thy sword from thy sheath, into thy sheath. And then he says, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? We know from other gospels that Jesus had prayed that the cup might be removed, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. This cup, what cup is he talking about? He's talking about the cup that the Father has prepared. The cup that is full of his divine wrath and judgment. And Jesus was about to drain it to the last drop. Peter had no clue. Peter wants to protect Jesus, but Jesus is choreographing every action of this scene, and nothing is out of step with his will. Jesus came to die. He was born to die. Jesus didn't need protection from what he was sovereign over. Look in verse 14. It says in verse 12, they, they took him and, and they led him away in verse 13 to Ananias first and then to Caiaphas. And now Caiaphas, verse 14, was he 
It references this. Listen, John directs reference to this uh, past event that's found in, in John chapter 11. He says, Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. If you need a reminder, if you go back to John chapter 11 and verse 51, it says, And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, this is speaking of Caiaphas, the guy in verse 14 he's talking about, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but that he also Uh, that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Caiaphas made a prophecy about Jesus, but he said more than he really understood. John reminds us of this to assure us that the injustice that Jesus is facing is part of God's divine plan to rescue us from the bondage of sin. Jesus is sovereign. He is the sovereign Savior. He's directing all of the events right here. Peter's actions in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, we see his actions, him following along and, and trying to listen in. And they're further proof that Jesus is aware and in control of every aspect. In verses 19 through 24, the high priest then asked Jesus of the disciples and of his doctrine. And he said, I spake openly to the world. I taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. So why are you asking me? Ask them that which heard me, which I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? And Jesus answered him, I have spoken. If I have spoken of evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Jesus, again, is the one asking the questions. He's turning the table on his interrogators. He's in control. Why Why are you asking me? Jesus is innocent, but Jesus is not a victim here. A victim has no control over his circumstances. Jesus is demonstrating step by step his sovereign control. Jesus taught in the synagogues. And what sort of things did he teach? Well, if you remember, he taught things like, I am the bread of life. And uh, those that eat of me shall never hunger again. Or in the temple, he taught about him being the shepherd. And that he would give eternal life to his sheep. Only God could claim these titles. Only the true Messiah could claim these titles. And, And only God could give eternal life. Jesus' message that he's pointing them back to is the gospel. He came to die. Through his death, he brings salvation to all sinners. Then we see the cock crow for Peter, showing again how Jesus is in total control. He knows all that is taking place. And his uh, his words are, 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 are followed through to complete fulfillment. Everything Jesus said is coming true giving us confidence continually that Jesus is in total control. And then let's look at these last few verses in verse 28. And I'm going to read through verse 32. John 18, 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they, they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that 
they might eat the Passover. And Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? And they answered and said unto him, If he were not a male factor, uh, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then then said Pilate unto them, "Take Take you him, and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. And then look at verse 32. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spake, signifying what death he should die. I point to this verse because we're talking about Jesus' sovereignty over all of these events. And we see this is kind of the the final puzzle piece to to Jesus' sovereignty. John is is building a case that Jesus is sovereign over his own betrayal, his own trial even, and even his death. Jesus identified the very method of his death. And if you remember with me how many times he did that, several times through the book of John, but probably the most notable is found in John chapter 3. When Jesus is talking to a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And what did he say? Do you remember? He said... In verse 14, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, a serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you remember this story? Maybe you're here and you've never heard the story of the fiery serpents. You see, when when God led the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of their bondage in Egypt, and they were in they were wandering through the desert. They weren't always uh, good, obedient children. And sometimes God had to punish them. And in one instance, he, he sent unto them fiery serpents, poisonous snakes to, to punish them. But they had one way of salvation. He instructed, God instructed Moses to make a brass serpent and to raise it up. So all that, who, who was it, who was uh, in the, the group, could see that serpent if they came out of their tent and looked at that serpent. And he said, anybody who looks at this brass serpent will be saved and they won't die of this poison, these poisonous snakes. Do you see what Jesus is pointing out? He's the brass serpent. I, I, I think it's interesting to note that uh, the, the symbol of medical... Uh, the medical field is what? A serpent on a, on, a, on a pole. Listen, Jesus is pointing to the very way that he would die. John 8, 28. Jesus said unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Or back in John chapter 12, verse 32 and 33, he says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And this he said, signifying what death he should die. So why was Jesus before Pilate? Why did the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate? Why were the Romans involved at all in his death, in his judgment, in his trial? Why? Because the Romans were people who crucified. Jesus had chosen the cross. 
And he didn't just choose the cross uh, in, it was seen through the book of John. He chose the cross from the foundations of the world. He is sovereign over his own death. Over not just his death, but of your and my salvation. He is the sovereign Savior. He's not a, a victim. He's not even some courageous martyr. A victim has no control. That's tragic. A courageous martyr may have control, but they're, they're set as an example. Jesus is not just an example. He's not just a, a, someone who died a horrible death. Jesus is a Savior. He orchestrated every event that led to his death and to your and my hope of salvation. But not only is he the sovereign Savior, Jesus is the crowned and long-awaited King. Now, if you're here and you're a believer, you need to listen to this. Jesus is the King. We don't have a King in the United States. We decided we didn't really want a king after a while, and, and we, we decided to separate ourselves from our king, who was a king over us from England. And we decided we're going to set up our own form of government without a king. But let me tell you, if you've trusted Christ, you have a king. And let me tell you, if you haven't trusted Christ, you're under the power of a king. And Jesus is the king, and in Scripture, he's revealed to be the king. Pilate recognizes Jesus as the king. In fact, he, he does it four times. He refers to Jesus as the king of the Jews publicly four times. In verse 39, he, he says, uh, You have a custom that I should release unto you the one, that, one at Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Hey, he's, he's identifying, he's recognizing Jesus as king. He, uh, the title king of the Jews is written above Jesus' disfigured face on the cross. And not only is it written in, in Hebrew, it's written in Latin and Greek. It's written in three different languages. You know why? Because this king wasn't just the king of the Jews. He was the king of the world. Amen. He's the king. His kingship was over more than just one nation. He is the ultimate king. This king brings men from every nation into his kingdom. What about in, in the first few verses of chapter 19? We see the soldiers dress him up and present him as king. I mean, he's mocked and, and, and they beat him, and, but they put on him a crown, don't they? I mean, it's a cruel crown of thorns, but they put on his head a crown. And they robe him. Uh, they robe him in purple, a purple which is a signal of royalty. They put purple robes on him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews! And they beat him with their hands. He's being recognized as the king. He's mocked by soldiers, but these soldiers are unaware that he's a king unlike the world has ever seen. Jesus is a king who humbles himself to die so that he might deliver those that hate him and those that rebel against him. Listen, if, if you're saved, Jesus died for you even when you were a rebellious person who hated truth and good and hated the rules that God has established before the foundations of the world. He died for you. That's the kind of king... Anybody and everybody should love. 
Jesus' suffering is a picture of the wickedness of our sins. I mean, we could talk about his suffering. It's intense. It's a picture of our wickedness. It it points directly to our inability and, and lack of desire to please him. Points to his grace in saving us. Jesus is recognized as king, maybe mockingly, but he's recognized as king. But Jesus is also rejected as the king. You know, Pilate may have mocked him. I don't, I think, I don't think Pilate was the kind of guy that you wanted your daughter to bring home to meet your family. Okay? I think people sometimes might have a, a nicer view of Pilate than is necessary. Pilate mocked Jesus, but he's not the main antagonist here. It's the Jews who had fully rejected him. I mean, think about this. They delivered him to Pilate in verse 35 of chapter 18. In verse 40, whenever he asked, should I release unto you the king of the Jews? They cried again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. They said, listen, we don't, want, we don't want Jesus. We want this thug Barabbas, this murderer and this thief. They chose to pardon Barabbas instead of Jesus. They rejected Jesus. Uh, in, in chapter 19, verse 6, And the chief priests, therefore, and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! It was the Jews... It was the Jewish temple mob that, that incited the, 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 the other Jews and the other mob to cry and to chant, crucify him. They appealed to God's law in verse 7. <laughs> they said, we have a law and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. They appealed to, the, to God's law to reject Jesus. They threatened to question Pilate's loyalty to Caesar in verse 12. And from henceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. They were intent on rejecting Jesus completely as king. Verse 15. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said, "Uh, Shall I crucify your king? Listen to what the chief priest says. He says, we have no king but Caesar. This king is fully rejected. Why did they reject him so completely? Because Jesus challenged their entire way of life. You know, these, this temple mob, the, uh, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of them, they loved their the control they exerted over the nation of Israel. And that was control that they exerted through guilt and fear. But Jesus exposed it. And you know what Jesus wanted to do? He came to offer freedom from guilt and fear through the cross. Jesus is recognized as king. He's rejected as king. Let's look finally in at his response as the king. You know, Jesus responded to Pilate's questions a few times. He didn't, he didn't stay silent every time. He, he did answer Pilate's 
questioned three times in this passage, but ultimately Jesus' response about who he was and about his kingdom is in chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Jesus is a king. But his kingdom is not a threat to the Roman Empire. That's what he's telling Pilate. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is greater than this world. I mean, there was no greater kingdom than the Roman Empire at the time. No greater power on earth. But the kingdom of Jesus that he was king over was far greater. Far greater than anything they had ever imagined. It's greater. It's beyond this world. In fact, it includes more than just the physical realm. And yeah, Christ's kingdom had servants. He he talked about his servants. But his servants operate much differently. His servants would uh, could take up weapons to protect the king, but his servants have different goals. If you're a believer here and you're, you've trusted in Jesus Christ and you're part of this kingdom he's talking about, that means you have different goals and different interests than protecting your king. Let me tell you, Jesus does not need protection. He doesn't need protection at all. Jesus does not need you to stand up for him. I mean, we live in a society that's attacking him from all sides, but he still does not need you to stand up for him. He needs you to follow through with his mission. Jesus needs no protection. He protects his servants. He has a job for us to do. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but I want you to just consider with me these two impressive truths about Jesus revealed to us from this passage. And I hope I've done a a decent job of of revealing this because it's important. To understand that Jesus was the sovereign Savior and that He orchestrated every aspect of His death speaks totally to Him being God. I mean, we, we like to talk about Jesus being God. We like to talk about Him being God, fully God and fully man in the flesh. Uh, we, we like to talk about that, but maybe we haven't really completely grasped how involved He was in His own death. But he was absolutely, I believe from the passage that we just read, he was absolutely in control step by step. That ought to speak to us. That ought to speak to us about him. It should matter. The fact that Jesus is king. Hey, we don't, like I said, we don't live with a king. We don't live under a king. Uh, the, The idea of America at its core is that you're your own king. You're you're given by God uh, uh, these inalienable rights that you should be able to govern your life as you wish within certain restrictions that we all agree upon. That's the Constitution. But ultimately, you're to lead your own life. Nobody's in charge of you. You've agreed to be part of of this republic, and so you, you agree to follow the laws, or that's what you're supposed to do. You're the king. But here we see that Jesus is the true king. 
I mean, I, I could go on and on here about, about how he is the long-awaited king. I could go on and on about the nation of Israel and how, they, uh, how while they didn't have a king at the very inception of that nation, how they uh, weren't supposed to have a king, that God was supposed to be their king, that they rejected God as their king. And finally, God relented, gave them what they wanted. He gave them Saul. And then the second king, David, was a great king. But more of the kings than, uh, than not were bad kings that followed David. And all along the way, they're pointing constantly to a long-awaited true king. And not just a king of Israel, a king of the world. A king of all eternity, of all time, past, present, and future. A king who we will worship in eternity. A king who will rule over us in peace and power. That ought to change the way we see things. So the last thing I want to talk about is why does any of this really matter? Well, the idea of Jesus being... Can you all hear me okay? I'm almost yelling at you because I think the sound isn't working, but that's okay. The fact that Jesus is the crowned king, what what does that matter? Well, as Christians, don't you ever feel out of step with the world? I mean, this world's going its own direction. It's got its own agenda, it's got its own mission and plan, and it, it's playing out before our very eyes in a way that has never existed before. It's playing out in the, through the media. I mean, we're seeing every moment of it just about. And it's easy to feel as a Christian out of step with the world. Well, you know why that is? Because Christians are out of step with the world. We're not... Yeah, we're in this world, but we're no longer uh, under this kingdom of this world. You know, there's a prince over this world. We're not under his domain anymore. We're under the domain of a true king. And, and that should mean something for us. The, the whole uh, fact that we're out of step with this world is the reason why many of us backslide or, or we become marginal Christians. And we live lives that, that really don't look different before the rest of the world because we, just, we decide that Monday through Saturday we're going to do everything that the world does and then on Sunday for just a couple hours we're going to act like we're Christians. It's a marginal Christian. It's pretty sad and pathetic. Now, I don't know that we're full of marginal Christians in here, but I know it's easy for any of us and all of us to slip into that. But the reality is we are to live for something different. When we understand and we commit ourselves to the idea that Jesus is the king, that he has revealed in this passage, uh, while Pilate may be mocking him and the soldiers may be beating on him, he's a king unlike anything they've ever seen before. He's revealed as the king. I mean, it's over. His disfigured face on the cross. He's the king of the Jews. But this king, he came to die for you and me. And when we, when we wrap our head and we commit ourselves to the idea that Jesus is king, and when you, when you put together the reality that you know he's alive, that he, yes, we know he's going to the cross and how that's going to end, that he's going to die on that cross, and they're going to pull him down in a hurried fashion and wrap him up as quick as they can and put him in a tomb because uh, the Sabbath was coming and they needed to get that done. 
Listen, we know all about that. We know that his death is, but his resurrection means that he's alive. And we don't, we don't serve a dead king. We serve a living king. And he exists in this universe alive. And he lives in you and me. If you've trusted Christ as your savior, Wrap your head around the idea that Jesus is your king. And if we would do that, we would see the world differently. And we wouldn't feel out of step with the world. We'd feel out of step with the world and we'd be like, yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to be out of step with this world because I don't belong to this world anymore. I belong to God. He bought me through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he has a mission for his church. Not to, not to get up on, a, on some kind of pedestal and argue with the heathen and tell them that they need to believe in Jesus because they're just wrong and all their politics are wrong. No, 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 no. Our mission is not to talk about how bad everybody's got it. Our mission is to declare Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead and salvation for all believers. And if we're not doing that, then of course you're going to be out of step. Of course you're going to slip back into this world. Of course your life is going to, feel, uh, it's going to feel meaningless and without value. And there's going to be times when your life, it feels like you're just spinning your wheels and nothing is happening. It's because you're not living for the king. Listen, it matters that Jesus is king. Amen. It ought to matter to us. But what about his being sovereign? I said it before, some people see Jesus as a a tragic victim. But in spite of the treachery of Judas, the blasphemy of the Jews, the brutality of the Romans, Jesus, I, I see in this passage, Jesus will not allow us to see him as a helpless victim. We are only able to see him as sovereign, as in control. Some people want us to see Jesus as a courageous martyr who tried to show us how to die a a heroic death for some kind of cause we were to believe in. And yes, Jesus is heroic. And and yes, he suffered persecution and death. And yes, his death is, is an example. But you can't look at him as just a heroic martyr. And if you're here and maybe you've thought those things about Jesus before and you've heard the story and you embrace the idea of Easter, but your, your embracing of this idea is, is just this tragic event that, that is a marker for all of history, by the way, before Christ and, and, and after, uh, it's the other, Ad Domini, right? It's after the crucifixion. Listen, if you just see that as an event where something tragic and horrible happened to a really good guy, then you miss the point. Because Jesus isn't a victim. and He's not just a, a martyr. Jesus isn't just a, a, he, he's not a, just an example. The only right way to see Jesus is as a sovereign savior. His life was not taking, taken from him. He laid it down willingly. In fact, not only did he lay it down willingly, he He picked the people who would do it. We talk about the love of Jesus. Can you imagine a greater picture of his love than to see him pick out his own means of torture and death? Something that that is a, a perfect reflection of our depraved wickedness. Something that would help shed his blood, the the blood that was necessary to wash wash us of all of our sins. 
He chose it. And you want to know why? Because we didn't need a victim to die in our place. We didn't need a martyr to set some kind of grand example for us. We need a rescuer who would save us from eternal hell. This morning, Brother Allen sang a song, the Via Dolorosa, and he sang that he chose the cross. But how did he choose it? Out in that song, what did he say? Out of his love for you and me. I believe that's what it says in John 3.16 too, right? God so loved you and me that he gave his only, his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me tell you something. If you're here today, you've never trusted Jesus, he chose to die for you. And he could have chosen a lot easier ways to do it. He could, have got, he could have chosen to be born at a different period of time and get hit by a bus on a street. That'd be quick, right? He, he could have chosen to, to die some, uh, some kind of quick uh, disease that would take his life in a short... But he chose the most horrible way to die. And he, he marked it all through history how he was going to do it. And then he saw it through to the end. And why? For you. So that if you would just trust him, if you would just, if you would just wrap your head around the idea that Jesus is your only hope, that you can't be good enough, you can't go to church enough, you can't give your money to the church enough, you can't follow the right guru, there's nobody else that's going to help you get saved. It's Jesus only. That if you'll believe in him, you'll have everlasting life. And John 3, I, I, and I, but Lester has helped me uh, fall even deeper in love with this passage. I think all good Christians are in love with this passage. But the very last verse, man, it makes it really clear. It makes it very clear. John 3, 36, he that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. It's not like uh, you're going to get it later. No, you're going to have it. Because I, when I was 14 and I, when I trusted Christ, that day I got eternal life. And I've had it ever since. <laughs> I mean, this body's going to die. You may be confused about that. Well, Darren, aren't you going to die? Yeah, I'm going to die. This body's going to die, but I'm not going to die. I'm going to live for all eternity. And there's countless people in here who, who have trusted Christ and you have eternal life, and you now live under a king who has a meaning and a direction for your life. But if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, it says that he that believes on the Son has everlasting life. It doesn't say that you got to clean up your life or do anything else. You can't add to it. You're just going to have it because of Jesus. But I said this verse is clear because it doesn't stop. It says, he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. There's a reason why we preach the cross. There's a reason why I'm uh, speaking at the top of my voice trying to share this with you is because 
This is the most important truth that exists. I mean, there's a lot of important things in our life. Uh, we can name them. What you do, who you marry, how many kids you choose to have. Uh, even buying a house is a pretty big decision. Where you go to college, what kind of career. These things have life, uh, life-changing uh, uh, implications. But that life is just this physical life, this temporary life. There's only one decision that you make that has eternal ramifications before you're saved. What have you done with Jesus? If you're here and you've never trusted him, I'm telling you today, you can be saved. It says he that believes has everlasting life. You can be saved today. If you need a little deeper understanding of that, hey, we would love to share that with you. It would be our joy. That's what we're here for. If you're here and you've trusted Christ, how are you living for your king? Let's stand.